You may recall a film from the mid-1990s with a slow-rising sun on the African savanna, extenuated by music written and composed by Elton John and Hans Zimmer, that would beckon forth animals across all of Africa to come see the dawning of a new prince of the Pride Lands. That film would be known as The Lion King, in case you didn't get all that beautiful imagery that I just described. Now, The Lion King is one of my favorite films of all time, as a kid and even now as an adult. And although I haven't seen the live-action, but not-so-live-action remake, The Lion King still holds, for me, a very special place in my heart. It's a great coming-of-age tale that talks about the need to grow into maturity, to do what is rightfully ours to do, to take responsibility, and most of all, I think, to vanquish evil especially when a lie and horrible injustice has been committed that needs to be undone. This is episode 61 of The Writer's Lens. I'm Josh Chasey Alfelto. This is going to be my analysis episode of The Lion King. Again, the 1990 version, not the most recent remake live action that was not really live action. So if you've seen the animated version, that's the one I'm going to be referencing for this episode. If you've seen the new live action remake, I will not be referencing that one for this episode, so just FYI. All right, well, let's just get down to it. This is episode 61, The Lion King and What Redemption Looks Like. Man, I, I just love that that song from... The Lion King, that's the opening, the circle of life. Elton John did just a phenomenal job with that movie. And I think Hans Zimmer was the composer, the guy who did all of the other instrumentals. What a what an incredible tag team those guys were for those films. Lion King, a little bit of background on this. I think The Lion King was probably the height of Disney in the 90s, if I should be so bold as to say that. They had so many heavy hitters in that film, you know, as far as voice talents go, uh, Nathan Lane with the part of Timon, uh, just so charismatic, just very well placed as far as uh, character, you know, actors go. Uh, Matthew Broderick playing the voice of the older Simba, uh, not really, I think, as well known at that point. He was probably better known for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, or no, not Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Breakfast Club, I'm sorry. Better known for The Breakfast Club at the time. And um, just a, a really good cast of characters in that film. And of course, James Earl Jones playing the, the part of Mufasa. What better person to play the part of a Lion King than James Earl Jones? The guy just, the voice is just amazing. <laughs> and Jeremy Irons playing the, the voice of Scar, just so iconic. Uh, even Whoopi Goldberg having her, her, her time as one of the hyenas, I think was uh, really well placed on the part of Disney. So... The original Lion King is the film that we're going to be opening up today on the writer's lens and taking a closer look at. And when I think of the Lion King, I think of a lot of different things. I think of the emotions I had as a kid when I first saw it in theaters, the uh, the scene of Mufasa being thrown from the cliff, being murdered by his own brother. For those who don't know, the Lion King is a loose adaptation of the Shakespeare, uh, the Shakespearean play Hamlet which is the story of a prince, and he's going to take the throne from his father. The king is a righteous man. His uncle plots to kill him. He does. He banishes the son. Son comes back, avenges his father, takes his rightful, rightful place as king. 
So clearly there's a lot of overlay between the two, except in Lion King, we're talking about lions and there's no humans in this movie. And uh, surprisingly, we care a lot about the lions. We care a lot about the hyenas, the meerkats, the, the warthogs in this film, the baboons, uh, the... I think the toucan bird that's in it, Zazu, I think he's a toucan. So, uh, again, The Lion King, iconic film. What's not to love about it? I guess if you grew up with it like I did as a you know as an elder millennial that I am, the age group that I'm a part of, The Lion King has so many really great moments and themes in it. But I think the one that probably gets the most attention is this idea of avenging the death of Mufasa. And the redemption story that Simba is is playing out throughout the entire story. So that's what I want to unpack with this episode. And really just kind of ask the question of, is The Lion King a true story of redemption? Because many people may not actually understand what redemption is or what it stands for. So we're going to talk about that too. So buckle your seatbelts. You know, here we go talking about The Lion King in this. So redemption. Technically, redemption is the action of saving or being saved from error, evil, or sin. So it is this rescue. It is this uh, sort of saving moment to be redeemed, is to be taken out of a place where some sort of evil or sinful act, something bad is happening and you are taken out of it. It also is to regain possession of something that was once yours. So that's leaning a lot more closely uh, with what The Lion King is about. But here's the catch. It is only acquired through the payment of a debt. And that's part of the original Greek translation. And this is the really important part of the redemption story is, is can we say that a payment was given in order for uh, whatever was once lost to be restored and be regained was a payment actually given in this story. So can we actually say The Lion King is about redemption? Can we? That's the question that I'm posing in this. Does The Lion King, the original, not the new one, get the theme of redemption right, or is it merely just another revenge story? So let's take a look. Now, getting into the story just from bare bones, and if you need a refresher course in The Lion King, if you don't want to go watch it before you listen to the rest of this episode, Mufasa has this relationship with Scar. And typically in the real world, uh, I just want to throw this out there because I'm a bit of a nature buff, lion brothers tend to actually be very cordial with one another because they need their brothers to survive. So a lion, a male specifically, out in the African savanna or in the marshlands of Africa, he's not going to last very long if he's by himself. So he has to do one of two things. He either has to pair up with his brothers that were from his litter or his cousins even per se, other males, and try to acquire himself a pride, which is a group of lionesses. So right then and there, you're already kind of suspending uh, any kind of belief that Mufasa and Scar would be adversarial towards one another. They'd actually be on the same side because they would want to survive. They would want to, you know, team up with each other, have a pride of their own so that they're not left out in sort of the, the savage lands to be uh, picked off and eventually killed by probably stronger males who have their own prides and they have lionesses hunting for them and all this kind of stuff. 
So Disney is not exactly scientifically accurate with this film. Uh, in fact, if anything, Simba being the lone prince would also be a bit of a stretch because there's a good chance that if Mufasa is the lone king in all this, if he's the lone uh, lion male that's overseeing this whole group of lionesses, there's a good chance that he's probably slept with all of them. And all of the children that have come out of them are therefore half-brothers and half-sisters of Simba himself. And for whatever reason, Sarabi is the queen. So even Nala, who is in this story, would be like a half-sister to Simba. So even when Zazu makes the comment, you two are going to be married someday, it's almost cringeworthy to sit back and say, well, are they cousins? Are they half-brother, half-sister? <laughs> it just You could go down the rabbit hole on that very quickly. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of get that out of the way in the beginning. Sorry if I ruined your childhood. Sorry if I've brought something to light that you had no idea about lions or maybe you had no reason to ever want to understand that about lions. But but that's the truth. Okay, in the, in the real world, Mufasa and Scar, they'd probably be on the same side. They wouldn't be against one another. But since this is a story with very human components and humans are uh, monogamous or, or try to be monogamous, uh, it's it's the most beneficial partnership for them to be monogamous, not polygamous. Then we are going to attack the story from that position that Mufasa and Sarabi, of course, are betrothed to one another, uh, and therefore Simba is their lone heir, and Scar is the conniving and vile and cunning as well younger brother who wants the throne for himself. So there you go. So that's that's the first part of this that we just want to get out of the way. Now Simba. Being that he is the prince, being that he is sort of this entitled little brat for a good portion of the story, knows he's going to be king. Okay, He knows that one day he is going to take over Pride Rock. He is going to have everything the light touches. And I just want to play that, that part here real quick. Look, Simba. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow. A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And this will all be mine? Everything. Everything the light touches. What about that shadowy place? That's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. But I thought a king can do whatever he wants. Oh, there's more to being king than getting your way all the time. There's more? <laughs> Simba... Now, this part is really interesting because it sets up the scenario for Simba where he's kind of seeing his future. Now, Mufasa naturally is going to show him the ropes. He tells him about the circle of life. He tells him that, you know, when, you know, our bodies die, we become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. And, you know, it's okay for us to eat the antelope because it's all this big circle that's all interconnected. Uh, this gets Simba for the first time on the path to becoming one day a mature lion and potentially becoming king. So Mufasa is trying to imbue upon Simba the wisdom that is necessary to be a ruler, the necessary wisdom to be a king, is that you have to understand that this is your kingdom, this is where you rule, and the elephant graveyard or the shadowy place that's over, on, over yonder that was referenced, that's not our land. Okay, that's not where we go. Now, there's a whole lot of spiritual symbolism in this area, too. I mean, if you're not a spiritual person, hey, that's okay. 
But for me, seeing it through uh, my lens as well, from a very spiritual one, this is very interesting. You know, everything the light touches is our kingdom, but that shadowy place over there, we are never to go there. That is where all of the evil things, the vile things, all everything is death. It is Hades. It is, you know, the you know the pit of despair, if you will. Everything that's over there is to be untouched. It's not to be touched. And this is also part of the dynamic of uh, the right to rule. So, you know, if you are fit to be king, you will not go there. You will stay within the light. You will stay within the place where you will experience the most joy and where you are rightfully supposed to reign. Now, naturally, Simba breaks this rule of Mufasa's and nearly gets himself killed with his future wife, Nala, who could be his half-sister, as we've already discussed. And Mufasa comes to save him from the hyenas, who the hyenas, unfortunately, are posed as the bad guys in all this. They're they're kind of like mobsters. They're almost like the mafia of the elephant graveyard. All they want to do is, is eat more, but they're always starving because the lions hog everything. Uh, and in the, in the natural realm, there actually is a very uh, sort of, you know, con, confrontational relationship between these two species. Uh, hyenas and lions are always against each other. So kudos to Disney for picking out a proper villain-type animal for this film, even though hyenas aren't, like, naturally evil. Uh, they, they do a good job of making them look like they are for the sake of this film. So anyway, Mufasa saves Simba. And he has to scold him about, hey, you know, you could have been killed out there when you went to the elephant graveyard, you went to that shadowy place. That was a big mistake, right? That was a big mistake. This is not how a king is supposed to act. And this is, of course, all after the wonderful musical portion of I just can't wait to be king. And Simba is sort of turning his back on his one of his mentors, which is Zazu, who's sort of like the king's teller in some sense. So Simba gets his first real hard lesson in life is, look, listen to your dad. Try to keep your nose to the ground a bit. Don't get cocky. Uh, but in the same sense, Mufasa plays with him and you know gives him this sort of foreshadowing of, you know, I'm not going to be with you forever. And one day I will be up in the stars and you can look up upon them and know that I'm looking down on you. You know, this kind of imagery is very sweet and gives Simba something to look forward to. And it also, of course, gives Mufasa something to look forward to as well knowing that, as Mufasa says, a king's time rises and falls like the sun, which, again, is some really good poetry in this. And I have no idea if they're using these same lines in the quote-unquote live-action version. I have no idea. Again, I'm just going off of the, the original cartoon, which, you know, could be superior. I don't I don't know, but to me it is because that's what I know. <laughs> so, anyway, so, of course, what follows from there is Scar plots to kill Mufasa, kill Simba. He organizes the buffalo stampede in the in the in the gorge where Simba is chased in that wonderful scene. Mufasa of course saves Simba and as he's climbing up to the top of the the you know out of the valley, Scar you know grabs him with his uh, claws. It says long live the king, which of course is this ironic moment and then tosses his brother into the stampeding uh, wildebeests and uh, subsequently dies. Probably one of the most heart-wrenching scenes I've ever seen in the film as a young person, even today, being a dad now, and thinking of what that would be like you know, with my own son, it's so gut-wrenchingly real, uh, just watching that happen and just seeing the tears on Simba's face and not knowing what to do. He's so confused. 
And then Scar, being as manipulative and mischievous as he is, comes over and blames Simba for what happened. Like, look at you. Look at what you've done. Uh, so immediately making Simba believe the lie that he was the one solely responsible for the death of his father. Talk about a horrible, horrible uncle and a terrible, terrible burden to bear. And not only that, it's a false burden, which keys into the incredibly villainous nature of Scar's character. Scar, to me, is one of the greatest villains, I think, in any Disney film because he truly is the embodiment of twisted, perverted logic. Scar, as an uncle, could have lived lavishly, right? He could have been part of the, the king's court. He could have helped Simba grow. He could have been part of Simba's life. He could have built into his life. But because of his need for power, because of his desire for uh, sort of authority, he goes this route of setting up the death of his own brother and then to try and kill his own nephew. Uh, total perversion of good. I mean, total perversion of good there. So Scar, of course, tries to kill Simba, fails. Simba is left to, to his own devices. He runs into Timon and Pumbaa, who are these carefree individuals who convince him of this lifestyle known as Hakuna Matata, which he adopts, grows into an adult, and forgoes all of his responsibilities to one day uh, be king of Pride Rock. This is where I believe the theme of redemption starts to take hold. Because now that Simba has been negating his responsibilities, we all know that he's supposed to be the rightful heir to the throne. He's supposed to be the one that takes over at Pride Rock. But in his absence, because he's been cast out, because he's been made to believe a lie by his own uncle, he is seated outside the realm of where the light touches. In fact, he's not really in Hades, okay? He's not in hell, necessarily. He's not in the, the evil place that was referenced earlier. No, where he's actually at is in sort of this purgatory situation. Not that I believe in purgatory necessarily, but he's in this sort of limbo where he wants to remain as a child with childlike tendencies, with childlike responsibilities, even though he's matured physically into an adult. So this is, again, a very interesting dynamic because he's supposed to be the king, and yet he acts like a slovenly uh, gesture. Okay, just, I do what I want. You know, I have no responsibilities. I, I, you know, I don't owe anybody anything. Again, still carrying over the entitled attitude that he had as a cub, as a young boy. Now, this is, this is a wonderful theme for any film, okay, for any story, a, a coming-of-age tale where a youngster has to rise up as they get older and recognize that as an adult you have new responsibilities. Uh, Jordan Peterson, who's a, a gentleman I've been following a bit on YouTube and social media for a while, does a probably an even deeper analysis of The Lion King, talking about uh, all kinds of stuff within The Lion King, which you know to him I think is maybe his opinion on this is one of also one of the best Disney films that they made. But Peterson would would say from a story standpoint and from a responsibility standpoint, you have to you have to eventually stand up straight, clean your room, right? Like you know these are some of the the, the Peterson isms that he's made very popular on social media and in our culture today, that young men have to adopt, they have to, they have to aim themselves at, is clean your room, get your own room in order before you go out and criticize the world. Uh, his book, 12 Rules for Life, have all, 
all of these ideas sort of unpacked and and further expanded upon if you were ever interested in reading it. Pretty good book. Pretty good book for the um, you know for the most part. So Peterson would be one to say that Simba is completely ignoring his responsibilities. He doesn't want anything to do with what his initial uh, sort of pathway was. He's adopted this new one. He doesn't want to deal with the guilt of his past. He's believed the lie that his uncle told him, the perverted truth. It wasn't the real truth. He's believed this entirely, and so he's gone down this path of almost nihilism in some way, just leading this sort of meaningless, pleasure-filled life where there's where there's nothing that he has to, to call home to. Now enter in Nala, his old childhood friend who's an adult now, part of the pride. She's under the reign of Scar now. Uh, you can fill in all the blanks you want there. And she is hunting out in the jungle. She runs into Pumbaa and Timon. Simba defends them, recognizes it's her, and they have this wonderful moment where they recognize each other. And it's semi-humorous. But she eventually calls him out and says, where have you been? You know, why have you not come back to Pride Rock? And of course, Simba makes this, you know, sort of justification of, look, uh, you know, it just wasn't for me. I, I came out here and it's great and I, I love it here, etc. And Nala just says, hey, you know, we really needed you back home. Things are terrible. Look, your decision has not just affected you, it's affected everybody else that you were supposed to be responsible for. And this is another key component in Simba's character in terms of him making a payment and being redeemed. So Nala is telling him exactly what has happened because of his decision. Because of the fact that he's believed this lie from his Uncle Scar, this domino effect has taken hold where every person who was supposed to be under his stewardship and, and basically servitude, uh, is leading a very horrible life as a result of him uh, negating his responsibilities. And when Simba is confronted with this, what do you think he says? He says, I don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of this whatsoever. Leave me alone. I like my life how it is. I don't want any of that you know, maturity that you're, that you're trying to spit into my ear. Get away from me. I don't care if you're beautiful and I, I was supposed to marry you years ago. That's all said and done. It's over with. Finished. And then Nala, of course, does the wonderful thing that any good woman will do. She'll make you look into yourself when you're not expecting it and, <laughs> and says to him, after he says to her, you're starting to sound like my father, she says, good, at least one of us does. This, of course, sets Simba off. He tells her off. She tells him off says, hey, why don't you open up to me? Why are you being ridiculous? And he storms off. And this, this of course, leads into the, the very iconic moment of the film where Mufasa sort of comes down from on high, tells Simba to, to hey, you got to remember who you are. Uh, you've got to recognize that you're, you're meant for greater things. You are the son. You're the one true king. Very spiritual imagery here of sort of God the Father, Mufasa, looking down at his son, saying, hey, you've got to do this, right? And it's almost, in a very biblical sense, the moment in the in the garden of, of uh, Gethsemane, or, oh my gosh, I just totally botched the name, but it's it's when Jesus is praying to, to his father, and he's saying, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. Okay, I, like, I don't want to actually go to the cross. I don't want to be killed at all. Um, I am I am grieved to the point of death. 
essentially. Uh, but if it is your will, Father, I will do it. And naturally, as you know the story, if you know the biblical story, yes, he goes to the cross and 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 does it. You know, thank you know, thank the Lord. Uh, but from this point of view, in the Lion King, Simba's being urged by his father Mufasa, "Hey, you have to go back and do what you're supposed to do. Don't ruin this. You know, don't be foolish." There's actual life waiting for you if you go and do this. If you're willing to sacrifice your life as a vagabond and become the king that you were meant to be, there is much waiting for you. Go back and go claim it. So after, of course, meeting with the sage character, which is Rafiki, who convinced him to do this in the first place, Simba takes off, heads back. You know the rest of the story. Uh, He fights Scar. He uncovers the lie that he's believed all these years. Scar was the real murderer of his father, the the orchestrator of all the horrible things that have happened. This big battle ensues with the lionesses and the hyenas, and Simba does the slow motion battle with Scar atop of Pride Rock with flames everywhere. It's just, again, just really, really cool sort of, I don't know if cinematography is the right word because it's all animation, but really great animation there. Uh, between that battle and just the musical score and everything else. Simba topples Scar, defeats him. Scar is maimed and killed by the hyenas, or at least we're made to believe that that's what happened. Evil is vanquished. The Pride Lands, which were once barren, the rains come, life returns. Uh, Simba does his great roar into you know into the, uh, the valley, which in, for whatever reason brings back the rain. Everything comes back to normal or returns to the goodness that it was before. And Simba takes his place. Nala is his queen and they have a baby. That's the end of the story. So in all that, as I've as I've wrapped up everything rather nicely there, and I'm sure you've watched the film if you've followed with me for this long, in any of that, was there a payment made? Was there something given so that the redemptive act could be completed. Now, I will say first and foremost that if you just gloss over it, you might say, no, nothing was paid. It's merely a story of revenge. Simba shows up, avenges his father, takes his place as king. Say, So he's the rightful heir, but none of this would have happened if Scar hadn't have killed his brother, which prompted the catalytic moment where Simba left, comes back, and avenges his dad. Looks a lot like vengeance to me. Now, he regains something that was once his, which was his rightful place as king, so that is redemption. But being acquired through the payment of a debt. So what was the debt that got paid? What was the debt that is getting put forth so that Simba can become the king of of Pride Rock. So what is it? That's the big question. And here's my answer to you. The debt that is paid is essentially Simba's romp through the wilderness and uh, his desire to be a complete uh, uh, vagabond for all of his days and him sacrificing that lifestyle to become the king. That's the, that's the payment that he has to make. He has to give up this carefree life, this, this world that would revolve only around him. He must sacrifice it so that he can become the lead servant, so that he becomes the king that he was always meant to be. 
And that's the redemptive story of Simba <laughs> from, the, from the, the story of the Lion King. Uh, and although I'm sure there, there could be some other themes in there that you could kind of unpack and you could pick apart and you could say, okay, this was, this was also a very redemptive moment for Simba. But it's redemptive for him specifically because he, he sacrifices his freedoms, his, you know, sort of his own will for his life where he would just follow his desires, he would follow his pleasures to the end of whatever that would look like. He sacrifices all these things at the altar of uh, whatever you want to call that, of immaturity or maturity and moves in the other direction to become the king that he was meant to be. And that, my friends, is what redemption looks like through the guise of an animated lion uh, cartoon <laughs> for the sake of being redundant. <laughs> so, so yes, redemption looks that way. Redemption, again, if I can just reiterate this, is being saved from error, evil, or sin. So Simba's saved from evil. He, you know, in some way saves himself. He, he faces down the gauntlet. He takes on the dark one, which is Scar in this story. Uh, and he regains possession of what was his, which was the throne. He makes the payment, which is basically uh, him sacrificing his, I mean, his own personal freedom, his own personal desires to become part of this circle of life, the natural order of things. He steps into the role that was meant for him, that would give him the most life, where he could thrive the best, even though he was convinced that his carefree life was the best one. Uh, he still down deep knew that this was who he was and who he was meant to be. So to me, this is a very fascinating story. I mean, just there's, there's so many great themes throughout all of The Lion King. This was the one that I wanted to touch on the most because, yeah, I mean, in some ways you could look at it and say, hey, this is just a glorified story about vengeance. This is just a great story about uh, a son avenging his father who was killed wrongfully by his, his own brother. And that's really all that it is, right? I mean, that's, I mean, you could just boil it down to some other things. It's not really a story about redemption or restoration or renewal or any of those other good things. But in fact, it, it really is. I mean, it, it really is about good triumphing over evil because Scar is totally evil in his actions. He's malicious. He's malevolent. He's, he's all those bad things you want to you say. And even his, his uh, appearance is evil. He has sort of this long sort of face to him where he's, he's almost sly looking. He has a very dark mane. You know, he's, he's got the darkness thing going on. Uh, his claws are always out. That's another interesting tidbit about his character. If you ever watch the movie again, you'll see those claws are almost always out. Like he's ready to pounce on anyone at any given moment. It's, a, it's not a common thing for lions to do. But that was added in for the effect of, you know, you can't trust this guy. There's something about him that's off. Uh, he's not as big as Mufasa. You know, he's not sort of kingly in his presence. He's kind of like the, 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 the worst version of, of the good of, of what could be the best version of the king, right? He dwells in the shadowy place. He goes to and from the light and into the shadow. That too is a very interesting spiritual uh, image because that's also very uh, characteristic of of the Satan character or Satan, if you if if you know that pronunciation, who goes to and from heaven as he chooses between heaven and and uh, you know earth and hell, if you will. Scar does the exact same thing. He goes to and from the light 
and the, to the shadowy place of the elephant graveyard. He tra traverses this land as much as he chooses. And when he amasses his army of hyenas, he convinces them that he's going to share in the profits with them. But what happens? By sharing with the hyenas all these things, by using them, everything becomes a drought. Everything becomes famine. Everything turns to sort of dust. There's a darkness that settles over the land that is unpredictable. And no life can really thrive because of Scar's way of reigning over things. Uh, so the payment, the, the justice that's carried out, the, the rightful heir to the throne moving into the space of Pride Rock, getting his, getting his real estate back, Simba taking over the pride. Yes, absolutely, The Lion King is a story of redemption. And it has tons of great uh, imagery and just metaphor in it uh, as far as, uh, you know, from the biblical narrative. Again, if, again, if you're not someone that is really down with biblical thinking or anything like that, to me, I see that all over this film, uh, and I just love it even more so because of that. Even though it's just it's just a good story, anyways. I mean, it's a it's a great story of coming of age, recognizing that you have to mature, uh, recognizing that responsibility is something we all have to take up if we're going to live our quote unquote best life, and that there's a real brilliance in seeking the truth out and not just accepting the lie. Like, don't just accept the lie. Don't accept the fallacy of a situation to really dig in, try to find the truth. And, uh, you know, Simba being able to discern the truth set him free. He was able to face his his uncle uh, on even grounds and not feel like he was a small person because he felt like he had been responsible for everything when, in fact, he was not responsible whatsoever. So there you have it. That's episode 61 of The Writer's Lens, my deep, deep dive into one of my favorite films of all time from my childhood, and even in my adulthood, the original Lion King with Matthew Broderick, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Jeremy Irons, James Earl Jones, to name a few of those big names. Whoopi Goldberg, we'll throw her out there too, uh, that were all a part of making The Lion King such an iconic film, and uh, and still to this day, you know, still to this day, I think it, it holds up as, as one of the, the great masterpieces of Disney from the early 90s. And their their animated um, uh, their animated run that they had for for several several years. So so stick around here on the writer's lens. I got more episodes coming up with an analysis on all kinds of film and, and TV and books. I am hoping to release these about once a week. We'll see how that goes uh, with these episodes, which I just I just love doing these. I love unpacking stuff like this. So I, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you thought I missed something. Or you felt like I got it wrong? Hey, you know, send it to me. You can, you can give me some feedback. You can hit me up at jclfalto at gmail.com. So that's J-C-L-F-A-L-T-O-T, as in tot. The T is silent at the end. Uh, at gmail.com, uh, and I will take your hate mail or I will take your your love letters. Either or is great. Uh, feedback is always good. Uh, it just depends on which one I choose to, <laughs> what do I choose to listen to, <laughs> as it is my show, of course, but. But you're free to give comments to me in any way you, you feel like you can reach out to me. And other people have reached out to me uh, who know me more personally and on Facebook and things like that too. So thank you for, for doing that as well and giving me some ideas for this for this series that I'm on now. I greatly appreciate it. But again, don't be bashful about reaching out. JCLFalto at gmail.com. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me uh, if you're a new listener 
or you've been listening for a while and you're just like, hey, how do I get, how do I reach out to this guy? I've, I've kind of like what he's doing. Uh, so that's it for episode 61. I got some cool interviews coming out, guys. Uh, enjoy your week. Enjoy your days. I will get back with you soon. This is Josh J.C. Alfelto for the Writer's Lens.